0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I think we all
1: specialize to some degree or another at some point, right? But in sports, the pattern was early on, The athletes who go on to become elite tend to have what scientists call a sampling period, where they do a wide variety of activities. They learn these general physical capacities that scaffold later technical skills. Importantly, they learn about their own interests and abilities. How
0: David Epstein discovered that having a wide range of interests leads to more successful outcomes.
3: Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people.
0: A few years ago, I read David Epstein's book called The Sports Gene. It's a phenomenal book, and it explains why some people are better at specific types of sports than others. It also famously challenged Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours thesis. David spent several years as a writer for Sports Illustrated and then ProPublica. His latest book is called Range, and it makes the case for why people with a broad range of interests are more likely to succeed than people who specialized super early in one thing. Most surprisingly, David's book says it's actually okay to quit. In fact, as he found out researching the book, some of the highest performing athletes, artists, musicians, and business leaders tried and then quit lots of things. It's how they figured out what they were passionate about and best at. David grew up in the Chicago area. As a kid, he played lots of sports, but after breaking his arm in football during high school, he had to find a non-contact sport. So his speed on the football field led him to try track and field, where he really excelled. And it was at that time when he started to wonder whether there's hard science behind athletic excellence. And those two interests, sports and science, followed him to Columbia University, where he was good enough to make the track team as a walk-on, but learned pretty quickly that didn't give him an automatic spot racing for the school at NCAA competitions. In fact, David was paired with a total star who ran a full 20 seconds faster than David in what was one of his best events. In the half mile. In the half mile. <laughs> yeah. Right. And 20 seconds is, I mean, that's like the difference between an A student and a, a C student in track, right? I mean, I would say that's a difference between like an A student and an F student right. in track. <laughs> yeah. So you were paired with this guy and, and the idea was, let's just pair him with this guy and maybe this guy will give up or, you know, like leave us alone. Yeah, I think that's probably the idea.
1: Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I did realize quite quickly, this this was a training partner guy named Scott, he was already on the national team for Canada. Wow. Uh, And I I realized pretty quickly that I I kind of couldn't do the workload that he could do. But again, he was, because he was, you know, the proverbial blue chip recruit, he was expected to perform right away. Yeah. I mean, the story in a nutshell is I was really terrible for two years, but I- was afforded this two-year period of experimentation because nobody cared what I was doing in the short term. I didn't travel with the team. They didn't need me to score. So hmm. over that experimentation period, figured out that you know there was a type of training that worked better for me than what I'd been prescribed. And once I homed in on that, I started making progress really, really rapidly and ended up as a university record holder. So I I went from, you know, the worst to like one of the best on the team, like to what seemed to other people as if it was overnight, even though I had had this period of experimentation that helped that. Yeah. But this like interesting narrative was foisted on me like, oh, I'm a walk-on with no talent. I'm so tough, you know? And, and this other guy, it was all the talent in the world, but he doesn't get better. So he must be a head case. But really, I think it was the fact that he didn't have any agency over his development and just Didn't have any time to figure out, like, who he was as an athlete, really.
0: It's actually a really cool story also, and I hope this doesn't sound weird, but, you know, physically you're not, like, an imposing guy, right? You're thin, and probably slightly under six feet, maybe? Sli- oh no, I'm way under six I'm five foot six. When I was on yeah. the line
1: of national level 800 meter runners, I was sometimes, wow. you know, four inches shorter than wow. the next
0: shortest person wow. on the line. But, I mean, sometimes. A, a, and, and so, so you were walking on the team and then yeah. you used the advantage of low expectations <laughs> to um, yeah. to focus on a strategy- <laughs> That's a way to put it, yeah. That eventually allowed you to um, set a record, a school record for the um, 800 meter relay, what did you do?
1: Uh, You know, and I should say it wasn't just me. There was also an upperclassman who sort of invested in me a little and mentored me a little bit Hmm. and attuned me to the fact that, hey, part of this journey is figuring out what type of training works for you. And you need to experiment with things. You need to record what you're doing, you know, how you felt, what seemed to work for you. And when I was doing that, it became pretty clear to me. Physiologically, I was more toward the explosive side of things than the people I was training with who were much better at the longer distance events than I was. Hmm. But like I had a better vertical jump than they did. And I was like quicker at changing directions and things like that, you know. So the type of training that they were doing with this high mileage was just just destroyed me. Like it Hmm. sapped both my speed and my endurance. And so over time, my training started getting better when I was doing fewer and fewer miles in training, fewer really hard workouts, lots more rest. Uh, and and doing what people sometimes call polarized training, where I was spending very little time like running moderately far to moderate pace and a lot of time doing things that were really, really easy. And then a small amount of times doing things that were really, really extremely hard hmm. and very little time in that sort of moderate area where my training partners were. Uh, and that was that worked much better for me. Yeah. The The downside of it was that it meant getting worse for the better part of two years. Uh, while I was experimenting with things, um, and just you know saying, "Well, okay, that thing really doesn't work with me. This thing does."
2: Wow! Well,
0: how did you know that that was going to work? Because two years is a long time.
1: Uh, I definitely didn't know it was going to work, <laughs> um, but but that's where I think the role of a good coach or mentor, because especially as you get to higher levels, like at the at the early levels of sport development, there's like fundamental principles that, you know, kind of apply to anyone early in the learning curve. But as you go up, coaches are no longer really telling athletes what to do. They can't in many cases, right? The athletes, as they're getting these higher and higher levels, they have to sort of engineer their own solutions and they often have to do do it on the fly. So there's no no one that could just tell them exactly the right thing to do. And it becomes Mm. much more about walking hand in hand with the athlete as they kind of self-discover the way that I did and do the trial and error process. And I think a big role... For the coach, and I think this is a big role for leaders in, of any kind, is to underwrite the proper risks for their athlete hmm. and saying, like, oh, no, no, this isn't just you sucking. This is a plan where we're going to figure out how to get better. And sometimes getting worse is going to be part of that. And this hmm. is the risk you have to take. It sort of liberated me to think of that as a period of experimentation. And again, focused me on that longer term development where I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is part of the plan, <laughs> you know, um, even though they, they couldn't have known if it was going to work out either. Yeah. But they gave me the courage to kind of take smart risks.
0: You know, David, when I was reading about your life um, and 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 there's a story I read about one of your high school track teammates who was just an incredible athlete. Um, yeah. When you were in college, I guess, or, or, or maybe you were still in high school, um, he – collapsed after i mean like he 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 ran a race and collapsed and died um and that and we've heard these stories before but about you know these just amazing athletes whose heart hearts just stop um and and i guess in a sense that kind of inspired you to want to study science and sports and understand why things like that happen
1: yeah definitely and he was one of the top guys in the country in his age group Hmm. um in the 800 meters and, and died at the end of a race just you know, not having any previously recognized symptoms. And, you know, so my hometown paper um, said, well, heart attack. And I just kind of said, what does that even mean yeah. for a guy of this age and health? I don't even know. And eventually had his family sign a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records. And long story short, turned out he had a an undiagnosed or really misdiagnosed genetic disease that is the most common cause of sudden death in athletes. And basically i was you know i was at the time training to become a scientist and i decided i wanted to merge my interests in sports and science and write about sudden cardiac death in athletes and do it for a popular audience because i thought we wouldn't be able to save everyone but but with awareness about certain aspects of it we would save some people Mm -hmm. um and that's what i ended up doing i mean and that's so my first major article at sports illustrated was about sudden cardiac death in athletes and Um, You know, I got there as a temp fact checker and, and, and pitched that story and it got rejected because who am I, the temp fact checker? And then the Olympic marathon trials came to Central Park for the 2008 Olympic team and one of the top 10 guys in the country dropped dead like 15 blocks from our office. And, you know, so they came back to me and said, hey, don't you know something about this? And so as a temp, you know, I had a cover story there and then I became the science writer. And that – it was really my friend's death that also ignited
0: my interest in genetics in general. David, when I was reading about your two books, The Sports Gene and Range, um, it occurred to me that pretty much everything you did, whether it was was intentional or not, and I suspect it was not intentional, really like led to – the writing of these two books, I mean you you ran track, you were bad at it, you got better at it, you got really good at it. You then um, did a master's degree in geology, um, and so you were steeped in scientific research. You became a reporter for several years, covering totally different topics: crime, higher ed, yeah. then sports, and then you were you would apply the the scientific research to your sports book and also to your book on social science. So we're going to talk about all that. But it's before we kind of dive into it, I mean, was any of, of, of that journey intentional or did it just kind of – was it just kind of a – just one foot in front of the other and it just kind of happened that way?
1: It's funny you ask that because when I – and it's funny to hear it summarized that way because it's true, but it sounds so like haphazard. Um When I was like 16, I was positive everything. I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. I was going to be a test pilot. I was going to be an astronaut. Like I was so linearly driven to certain long-term goals. Of course, I did none of those things. And I kept having these sort of specific long-term goals. Um, becoming a scientist, et cetera. But all the projects that turned out to be really important to me turned out to be much more opportunistic, where I would develop some interest, Um, you know, sometimes because something bad had happened in my life uh, that got me interested, and other times because I turned out to be good or bad at something I didn't expect or interested in something I didn't expect, and I would sort of pivot toward that. And so most of it was not intentional until sort of later on. I did realize at a certain point that what had worked for me was usually taking skills that were sort of ordinary in one milieu and moving them somewhere else where they were seen as extraordinary. So when I left the science track, you know, I got my foot in the door at Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker, like five or six years older than the people I was doing the fact checking for. And I'd gotten off the geology track and said, okay, well, you know, that was, that's nice, but that was like wasted time. But then I realized that hey, you know, I, I had average science skills among other scientists, so mm. very average. Then you take those over to a sports magazine, it's like you're a Nobel laureate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't think
0: of it that way at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it you mentioned certain things that happened in your life that that led you to a certain place and it's I think it's it's always interesting to think about those moments, right? Because what what would have happened had that not happened or Yeah one of the things you you did early on was you covered crime which strikes mm-hmm. me as an incredibly useful training ground both to be a science journalist right and also just the journalism part of it the actual investigative side to it that you would need yeah. to have you'd need to have those skills in order to eventually do what you did what what were you covering what i mean murders were you like is that what you were doing
1: Lots of those.
0: Um, and you put it really well. Like
1: It was just a job that I never would have chosen for myself and turned out to be so valuable, where essentially my first kind of semi-stable job in journalism mm. was as the guy who starts at midnight at the New York Daily News, so the tabloid newspaper. Yeah. Um, as you can imagine, nothing happy that's going in the Daily News happens between midnight and 10 a.m. <sighs> um, and so it was reporting on bad things happening. And Gosh, it was—and you're the only reporter on duty during those hours. Wow. So you're listening to police scanners, you know, learning what they call 10 code and trying to, um, you know, they'll say like, Officer 1014, things like they call these codes that that have certain meaning, and trying to figure out where you should report to. Um, it was—first of all, it gave me a view of New York City I had never seen before despite having gone to college in New York City. It taught me how to find people who aren't on the internet or in the phone book and how to talk to those people, all these aspects of how a city functions that I'd never been exposed to. I mean, it was such an incredible crash course in street reporting. And even though a lot of it was not fun, you know, and a lot of it was harrowing and it certainly wasn't glamorous... It was an incredible education that I, I constantly recommend, you know, when I get, especially when I was at Sports Illustrated, I would get contacted by a lot of journalists Mm. and I would often say like apply for these internships at these local community, you know, being a street reporter or at the tabloids. Nobody really wants to hear that because they're very unglamorous work, but man, are they incredible for building a, you know, a certain part of your toolkit that you really don't get anywhere else.
2: Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com, BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit BankofAmerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do?
3: Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to Bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit serviceNow.com/slash AI for people.
0: So here's David with what seems like two disparate skill sets at Sports Illustrated, but it turns out these skills put him in the perfect position to become part of a new reporting beat. When you were at Sports Illustrated, one of your if not, your biggest story there was breaking the, the, the news with uh, another writer, Selena Roberts, um, that Alex Rodriguez uh, had to use steroids in, in 2003. This report came out in 2009. Um, what, from your science background, gave you the, um, the feeling that maybe Alex Rodriguez, a star baseball player, had been using steroids?
1: Well, you know, most, um, from the science standpoint, I would say, first of all, the way I even got into steroid reporting at Sports Illustrated was people were less familiar with, like, what these drugs even were at the time. You know, they knew they make people stronger and stuff yep. like that. But there were other drugs coming around, and at Sports Illustrated, they were sort of looking like, can we do, like, an explainer on these drugs that keep coming up? And so first, it was just being willing to go through the scientific literature, mm-hmm. you know, and and sort of having a sense of how to parse some of that and, and who to contact, And then, I think in the post-Lance Armstrong confession era, it's pretty well known to people now that you can be taking a lot of these drugs and not failing drug tests. Yeah. So, as I started learning how easy it would be to avoid testing positive or how, you know, you could avoid some of the, like, very obvious physical manifestations, that was pretty helpful because that's when I realized that um, the assumption that most sports writers were making that, like, well, if they were taking drugs, they'd be failing drug tests or they'd be showing these other, you know— or they'd be dropping dead or their skin would be turning red because their blood pressure would be
0: so high and their hair would be falling out. Or they'd be jacked like right. Mark McGuire or Jose Canseco in the, in the 80s and 90s.
1: Right, right, exactly. So as I started to realize that the things that I myself had sort of, these ideas that I had that I had no basis for other than they were just sort of in the ether among sports journalists, mm. as I started reading the scientific literature, I realized like, oh, I actually don't know anything about this stuff and neither do any of my colleagues. And so- there are probably actually a ton of athletes that are taking these, that are not hmm. failing drug tests, that do not look like our typical model, that are not having these obvious side effects and manifestations, but are still you know, having a performance benefit.
0: And obviously, and of course, you broke that story about Alex Rodriguez. Do you think it's fair to say that up until regular drug testing and Major League Baseball, there was a period of time where a significantly large percentage of players were cheating, were using performance-enhancing drugs?
1: Yes, and I just want to mention Selena Roberts was definitely the senior writer on that. Mm-hmm. She was the most important person in that project. I was I was definitely the Robin to her to her <laughs> Batman. Um, but yes, yes, and in fact, I mean, I think that's still the case. Um, so I don't think now that there's more regular drug testing, I think current athletes are at a disadvantage when it comes to doping compared to their forebears, mm. but because they can't dope with quite the same reckless abandon, but they can still dope. And I think one of the telltale things you see is it, major league baseball players have a player's union that negotiates drug testing yeah. as part of collective bargaining. The minor leaguers do not. And so you see more rigorous testing in the minors and hence you see uh, a lot more positive tests. And so is is the proportion of, of tests in the minors, is it higher? There are more higher proportion of positive tests because People only dope in the minors and then they stop when they get to the majors? I don't think so. It's because the testing is more rigorous. So the major pro sports where there's collective bargaining, and obviously there's good reason for that, but um, still a tiny, tiny portion of people who are cheating would have to worry about getting caught. I mean, that's even true in Olympic sports. And Olympic sports drug testing is way more stringent than
0: than it is in the major pro sports. It's interesting to think about somebody like Lance Armstrong, right, who— cheated still an incredible athlete mm-hmm. but really it was because people found out he just wasn't a nice guy i think that yeah. people yeah. turn on him and then you look at somebody like alex rodriguez who is you know a tv personality widely liked admired he's an he, you know he's a, Excellent a, commentator. A, a commentator entrepreneur um and so the outcomes for these people Are very different. Like no one looks at Alex Rodriguez today and 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 thinks, "Oh, he cheated. He's he he doped." Like maybe some people do, but most people look at him and say, "Oh, he's a great TV commentator. He's a great guy." Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think if we ask people, including ourselves, why that is, like why athletes are treated so differently in this regard, um, most people would try to come up with some logical explanation that had to do with the nature of the cheating or something like that. You know, again, we saw this all the time with with Lance and with plenty of baseball players, it was like, well, everybody was doing it. But the reality of it, I think, as with, you know, and there's a lot of cognitive bias research on this, is that actually it's really what we think is kind of set by our emotions, and then we backfill some hmm. logical explanation. And so I think that aspect of, like, how do we feel about them is is probably the guiding factor of, like, do we think they were doing something that we find kind of morally reprehensible in general as opposed to, to the sport, like, like with Lance? I mean, I think the moment the wind turned for Lance was when the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency published a statement by one of Lance's teammates that said, hey, I grew up in a household ruined by drugs. Cycling was my escape. And then my boss told me I had to do drugs in cycling. That's when I think the wind changed. Not because people were surprised about the cheating, but but because of that.
0: You went on to write a book called The Sports Gene came out in 2013 I, I interviewed you about that on, on a previous show I did mm-hmm. there was a, a, a moment in time where everybody was obsessed and to some extent is still obsessed with the 10,000 hour rule that was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers this idea that if you apply yourself you know to something for 10,000 hours you you can master it if you if you stand at the free throw line for 10,000 hours and just shoot free throws you can master something. The Beatles did this in Hamburg. I mean, he, all the examples that, that he talked about and, and he also applied it to athletes and you were intrigued by this but not quite sure mm-hmm. whether it was totally checked out. Well, initially I assumed it was true
1: right. because it was popular and because it was um, – stemmed from the work of uh, a scientist named Anders Ericsson mm-hmm. and it really came out of a study from 1993 on – Thirty violinists who were in a world class music academy, and basically the ten best of them who could go on to become international soloists had spent ten thousand hours on average by the age of twenty in what's called deliberate practice. so this is not like going to the driving range and just swatting balls. it's like focused on error correction, cognitively engaged, coached you know with with quick feedback. It's not just sort of mindless practicing yeah and and that's what kind of led to this ten thousand hours rule and and really. There were a bunch of assumptions embedded in the 10,000-hour rule, one of which is that two people at the same level of skill will progress the same amount for an hour of deliberate practice. Right. And once I started seeing that, I said, boy, does that contradict everything we've seen in genetics. And everything you experienced as a runner. <laughs> yeah, right, where we see people getting different benefit from same, except in really, really simple perceptual motor skills. But for the most part, people get different benefit from the exact same... Uh, hour of training. And so I said, gosh, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't comport with some other research out there. And I contacted the researchers and I asked her, I said, okay, so this 10,000 hours average, like what's the variance around that? And I was a little surprised there was no measure of like averages can really lead you astray Mm -hmm. in articles. Um, And so I asked for a variance and uh, they didn't have it. And so I started to, you know, over time, I, I got some numbers on that and it turned out that, like, nobody had done 10,000 hours, right? That was this average of some people who had gone over and some people who had gone under. And so mm-hmm. it, by by printing only the average, it gave the impression that there was this magical rule and there was no such thing as talent. And it was only these hours of deliberate practice when, in fact, um, more realistically, like in chess, study of deliberate practice found that it takes about 11,053 hours on average to reach international master mm-hmm. status, which is one down from grandmaster. So more than 10,000 hours. It's not even the highest status. But... The interesting thing is that some people made it in 3,000 hours and others were being tracked in studies at 25,000 hours and still hadn't made it. Hmm. So you can have an 11,053 hours rule, but it doesn't tell you anything hmm. about the reality of skill acquisition, which is why I cheekily
0: subtitled a uh, chapter 10,000 hours plus or minus 10,000 hours. So you went – you kind of exploded the myth. It still exists. I mean that book was so huge, hugely popular and I think – There are good things about it, yeah. I should say. I think that – If I had to guess,
1: I I don't like to do too much straw manning and like assume what people have been Hmm. told. But if I had to guess, I would assume that most people probably underestimate how good they could get at things with a significant amount of practice. That they both hold in their head the idea that talent isn't the most important thing at the top. Like they, they probably underestimate how important talent is for top level performers. Yeah but also underestimate how good they themselves could get at most things with dedicated practice. I think most people kind of hold both of those things in their head. Which is why I think
0: Outliers is a a great book and still a a valuable book because it – I think you can walk away from that book understanding that um, putting the time and effort into something can actually make you better, right?
1: Yeah, definitely and some of the tenets of important – I mean Malcolm and I became running buddies. We first met for a debate about this and we became running buddies and would – would argue about this stuff on our own time, and um, I think are a lot more like on very similar ground now.
0: Actually, yeah, yeah. So, so this book, um, the sports cheat, is, is really when you when you start to really kind of dive into who was making it to elite levels in sports and why, and for, like for example, you came across a. Uh, a cross-country skier, I think, from from Scandinavia, who's just like functioning at a level almost unrecognizable to most of us, and it it turns out that that the oxygen levels in his blood was like like sixty five percent higher than the average person, right?
1: Yeah, this this was a a guy named Eero Manturanta, Finnish cross-country skier who um, won uh, several gold medals in the sixties. He he won an event. Uh, he also won some silvers and bronze in the sixties. He he won. Mm-hmm. Uh, one event you know in a, in a by a margin that has never been equaled and years after he retired, uh, some Finnish doctors who were just sort of you know had had seen his family for years discovered that he had this rare genetic mutation he and, uh, and some other members of his family, two of whom were also hmm. elite athletes hmm. that caused his body to overrespond to one of its own hormones basically and produce way more red blood cells than he needed and red blood cells carry oxygen. Mm-hmm. So he was basically naturally like what Lance Armstrong was with technology. Right. Wow. Instead of wow. having to to artificially increase his red blood cells, he was he just had this natural overproduction. And like elite athletes all have genetic advantages, but most genetic traits are not the result of a single gene and so they're very hard to pin down. In this case, there was a single gene mutation. Um on, on what's called the EPO. So EPO, if you remember, that's one of the drugs mm-hmm. that, that yep. cyclists were taking. It, in It's a naturally occurring hormone and in Aromontoranta's body, the receptor for that hormone, so receptor's like the lock, the hormone's like the key and the mm-hmm. receptor's the lock and you put the key in the lock and stuff happens. The receptor was overly sensitive to the hormone and so even a little bit would cause his body to produce just like tons and tons of red blood cells mm. and so he was kind of like naturally doped um, and uh, uh, you know, it kind of showed up in his his athletic career, and and he had two family members who were elite skiers, and and none of the people in the family who didn't have that mutation were accomplished athletes.
0: And and, and there was this guy uh, that you write about, Stefan Holm. Uh, I think he he was a Swedish high jumper who was like he was like five foot eleven. You know, not and not what the average person thinks of as super short for someone, but I guess for for that sport, uh, maybe not seen as being genetically predisposed to becoming an Olympic gold medalist, but uh, but he, he did. He did become one. Very short for an elite high jumper.
1: And he, you know, I think one of the reasons I profiled him, I think, is because high jump seems like something that's so, I think it feels like something that's really you got it or you don't. Like, either you jump or you can't jump. And, and clearly, height is advantageous in, in high jump, and either you got it or you don't. And, and as in the scheme of high jumpers, he didn't. But he fell in love with it and he, uh, he had this like innovative ways of training and over 20 years, he improved one centimeter per year until he became the Olympic champion. He's like you said, he's five foot 11. He cleared a bar of, you know, about eight feet. Wow. So he, he tied the record for the highest clearance over his own head. Um, and I thought that was such an interesting case because, again, I, I could hardly think of a sport that more felt like either you got it or you don't. Yeah. And he was he was he was good. You know, he was like a good regional youth athlete. But you never would have pegged him as someone who's going to become an Olympic champion. And yet yet he did.
0: And then there was th- this other incredible um, finding in, in the book, this this statistic that since 1980, every finalist in the men's 100 meter dash can trace a, his origins back to a small part of West Africa.
1: Yeah, that's, that is um, the case. So the area, you know, around something called the Bight of Biafra and that that area, whether, no matter what country they were running for, the UK, the US, Canada, the finalists were, all had their, you know, recent descent from from a certain area of West Africa. And you know, I think that's something that that is controversial uh, and that, that people recognize, but but people from that, with that ancestry, continue to be overrepresented in in like the hundred meters,
0: especially or 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 villagers from a part of Kenya who are essentially marathon champions. And some of the theories are about altitude, right? Their lungs are just more attuned to. They're running at high altitude. so they're 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 able to run much more efficiently in marathons and cities around the world.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a part of it. And in fact, you're, you're referring to a tribe called the Kalenjin mm. in Kenya. And in fact, you know, they are not strictly in Kenya, actually. Some of them are in Uganda mm. um, because the national borders were drawn, um, you know, not necessarily respecting where they live. Mm. Uh, and, and those, you know, some of the things they have in common first is a, a physiology that is conducive to long distance running, not a physiology that is unique in the world, uh, you know, it's all of the people you see in an Olympic final have physiological uh, uh, advantages for long distance running. Um, but it happens to be quite prevalent among people with recent ancestry, like around certain parts of the equator. But like you said, they also have their their homeland is in what is thought to be by scientists a sort of sweet spot of altitude, like kind of between the six to 9,000 uh, feet range. Um, where there produces certain adaptations like higher surface area of your lungs for better oxygen diffusion uh, that that might give a little bit of an advantage for for endurance. And in fact, there's certainly a a kind of conspicuous overrepresentation even among American champions hmm. of people who were born or, or grew up at altitude, particularly when they you know, for their developmental periods or then live there while they're training and, and then come down and race at sea level.
0: Uh, so and that happens to be their natural situation. So. I mean, what what is the you know? It's a, I mean, the book is totally fascinating because it's rooted in science. But part part of it, part of I, I remember when I read it, I I part of me was was a bit sad because you can walk away from that book concluding that without certain genetic gifts, it's very unlikely you you can develop into a an elite athlete.
1: That's that's true. Um, I guess I see it as like not. <laughs> so much of a downer for a number of reasons, one of which because I think sports is just a really, really cool um, venue to s- look at human diversity yeah. and in all these different achievements and that you see all these different body types that have a place in this world um, and that they, they can do different cool things. Because the the opposite of that was in the early 20th century, when when German sports science was the most influential, and I had, when I was reporting the sports gene, I would see some of their journals translated, Mm -hmm. and they kept using this phrase, the perfect form of man. Mm -hmm. And that meant only men, and it meant only white men. Mm -hmm. And it meant white men of medium height and medium build. And their idea was that there was this perfect build that would be the best for everything, right? Mm -hmm. And that everything else was an aberration. And, And so that idea where it's like, oh, well, you take average and then just add training, you know, I think that has some other nefarious implications whereas yeah. now we see this much greater diversity of body types doing all these different things meaning that you know a, a body body type that might be right for shot put you know isn't going to be right for swimming but there are all these different sports and so i think kind of at this point uh, compared to like in the early 20th century now i hope that even though by definition most people aren't going to be elite athletes and that's always been true just by definition and whether that's because of access to uh, training or competition, or because of physiological factors, I hope now more than ever people can look at the array of sports and see, hey, there's someone who looks like me in a certain way, mm. even if they themselves are not going to be uh, an elite athlete. Yeah, that they can say, you know, the the,
0: the this this body type is not an aberration. It it's good for certain things. Uh, on the other hand, I, I walked away from that book, um, r- sort of feeling relieved because I'm a parent of two boys. Um, and I have seen, you know, parents push their kids into travel sports and, um, you know, into one sport and, and you know, uh, basically fly or drive that kid around uh, the state of their country um, mm-hmm. from event to event. And very few of those kids will Become professional athletes, even though there are some parents who are determined you know to to see that through. I mean, even mm-hmm. if a kid makes it to you know becomes a division one athlete, I mean that you're already an elite athlete. but I think if I, if I if I remember correctly in the book, a significant percentage of professional athletes in the United States had one parent, at least one parent who was a division one college athlete.
1: That, that's true. That's true. I mean, and there are a couple of important things I think you mentioned there. One is the the flying around, right? Like where I lived in New York, there was a, a U8 travel soccer team that met near me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's a person in the world who thinks seven-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people that they <laughs> have to travel. But this, you know, sort of fervor has gotten so out of control that I think it's much more about customer retention for people who are running these sports programs yes. than it is about actual um actual development but but yeah there's there's no question that uh, certain types of athleticism runs in families and everyone accepts that when it comes to things like height right But when it comes to things that are just as easily measurable as height but on the inside of your body <laughs> that, that people don't see, it becomes you know a little more controversial or, or easier to deny um, but no there are there there certainly are these these lineages and I'm kind of interested to see now that women at least in the United States, have more opportunities to be athletes at higher levels, there are more athlete couples. Hmm. And so, you know, we'll see more kids of athlete couples. And so I think that could be interesting in the years to come.
3: Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit serviceNow.com slash AI for people. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
2: Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water... So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you.
0: David Epstein's latest book is called Range, and in it, he shows why having a range of interests and skills rather than a specific specialized skill leads to better outcomes. One of the things that's always intrigued me um, is this idea that children who are particularly talented at a sport are destined to become professional elite athletes. Mm -hmm. But in actual fact, from what you've determined, that tells us almost nothing about whether they're going to be a good athlete as an adult.
1: Yeah, there there are certain things like... Really slow kids don't turn into fast adults. You know, so if, if a teenager can't hit seven meters a second and when they're sprinting, then they're not going to be a pro soccer player. But that's not that fast. And for the most part, we um, view talent as a as a cross section for kids, right? We're looking at a point in time The kids who have had like any sort of formal training can often look like they're at a huge advantage, particularly biological maturation at that age, mm. is usually mistaken for talent and potential. Like we assume that two people that are separated by X amount at age eight are going to stay separated by that amount on stable trajectories forever. And it is absolutely not the case. In fact, there was just a paper published, the most comprehensive one so far, that looked at more than 6,000 athletes from from different levels, you know, from sort of local to the elite. Mm-hmm. And the title of the paper is, it's it's in a journal called Perspectives on Psychological Science. What makes a champion? And the answer is early multidisciplinary practice, not early specialization, wow. predicts world-class performance. And a main finding that I think to me was the less marketable but, but true subtitle of the book range <laughs> is that sometimes the things that you do that cause a head start or the quickest short-term improvement undermine long-term development. Hmm. And in this study, what they found was that the kids who went on to become elite played a wider variety of sports early, progressed more slowly early. So we're lower performing as youth athletes and then went on to become the elites. So Mm -hmm. there was this trade-off between short-term and long-term development, but that is really counterintuitive. And so, you know, I think this is a good place to really rely on the scientific research because our intuition about it is so bad, basically.
0: Yeah. You open the book with a story of Roger Federer versus Tiger Woods Um, Mm -hmm. to kind of illustrate this idea – of generalist versus specialist, what, mm-hmm. what what's the story?
1: Well, so I think the Tiger Woods story being, I would guess, one of the, if not the, one of the two most impactful modern stories of human development, sort of even people that don't care at all about golf, have some sense of it. And the outline is he was, uh, you know, his father gave him a putter when he was seven months old. At 10 months, he started imitating his father's swing. By two, you can go on YouTube and see him on national television. At three, he's saying, I'm going to be the next great a great golfer, and you know, by the age of 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. So that is like the quintessential kind of 10,000 hour story. Where on the other hand, you know, I tell the story of a boy who played a whole bunch of different sports. Whose mother was a, a tennis coach and declined to coach him because he w- he wouldn't return balls normally, so he didn't like engaging in deliberate practice. And I played some handball and and racquetball and basketball and soccer and skateboarding and swimming and wrestling and skiing and th- others that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Um, and declined to move up to a higher level because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice and and was not focused on being the next great from an early age. In fact, when he became good enough to warrant an interview with a local newspaper, the reporter asked him what he would buy with his first hypothetical paycheck if he ever became a pro, and he said a Mercedes, and his mother was appalled (laughs) and asked the reporter if she could listen to the interview recording. Turned out the boy said Mercedes. He just wanted, in Swiss German, he just wanted more CDs. So this was Roger Federer, who uh, is every bit as famous as an adult, as Tiger Woods, and yet even tennis enthusiasts usually don't know anything about his developmental story. And I told both of them as success stories. I wasn't trying to say Roger's more successful than Tiger or anything like that. They were both success stories. But what bothered me was that the, the Federer story, the one that nobody knows, even though he's one of the most prominent athletes of a generation, is like exactly what the science shows is the typical route to elite status, to Hmm. develop expertise. And the tiger story, the one that we focus on and try to imitate, is the exception. And so there's tremendous variability in how people make it to the top. But what I wanted to do was to focus on the norm instead of the exception. And adding to that, that I think golf
0: is a poor example of most other skills that people want to learn. So there's this, I think... um, there's been this perception certainly and and it's hard to know how long it's been out there maybe it's it's got to be a post-industrial revolution um phenomenon and certainly maybe one that's developed over the last 40 50 60 years that specialists do better they perform better Mm. when you've got a, a concentrated area of expertise you will perform better in whatever it is you do and of course we think of sports as a classic example of this but in fact um as you began to research this, you discovered that that's just not the case, that actually generalists function and perform better and have better long-term outcomes in, in a variety of fields.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I think we all specialize to some degree or another at some point, right? And the difference between a specialist and generalist is somewhat semantic. But the in sports, the pattern was early on because obviously, you know, you, you pick something eventually, but it was at early on – the athletes who go on to become elite tend to have what scientists call a sampling period huh. where they do a wide variety of activities. A lot of that is is a little more free form, you know, semi-structured or unstructured. They learn these general physical capacities that scaffold later technical skills. Hmm. Importantly, they learn about their own interests and abilities, which leads to better what's called match quality, which is a degree of fit between who you are and what you do, and they delay selection longer than peers who plateau at lower levels. And that turned out to be very similar to findings in a whole bunch of other domains, whether it's picking a college major, yeah. um, you know, or settling into a career, that having this sampling period where you one gain these sort of more generalized skills, but also gain insight into your own interests and abilities leads to leads to better long term outcomes. Mm. And and I should say that was in many ways, you know, kind of a surprise to me. Mm. One of the obvious things that comes to mind outside of athletes is like surgeons, right? Sometimes people will tell me, oh, like, well, I don't want a pilot to be my surgeon. I'm like, yeah, you, obviously you don't. That's silly. But, but what the literature says is that it is in fact true. And I mentioned this and I I wanted to make sure to mention things like this in range that specialized surgeons make, have fewer complications than non-specialized surgeons. It's totally true. Not only that, even on top of just the number of times that a surgeon has done a procedure, so let's say two surgeons have done a certain procedure the same number of times, Mm -hmm. the one who is specialized will have even fewer complications. Hmm. So there's something about being specialized, even aside from just the number of times you've done it, that has an advantage. I'm not sure what that is, but that's what the data show. That said, there's also convincing data that the specialized surgeon is a lot more likely to do that procedure when it's not appropriate and when it's not needed reflexively. And so the result is sort of like, you know, you may be in a situation where you're a lot less likely to have a complication for a surgery that you never needed. And so there's this double-edged sword, you know, or something called the einstein effect is this psychological effect that describes when people will do the same thing over and over, use the same solution over and over, because they're used to it, even when it's clearly
0: not the right solution. It it really, I mean, this, the evidence really suggests, at least to me as a parent, that we have to kind of fundamentally rethink how we parent and encourage our kids in in particular directions. I mean, most kids, you know, and I remember when I was a kid, um, I had lots of interests and I, I tried out a bunch of different things and so do my kids. And it breaks my heart when they quit those things. And I quit things as a kid. But actually, in your book, what you describe is that people who try things and quit things have better outcomes in the long term and that quitting things is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Yeah, I I think absolutely. I think it sort of depends on is someone quitting things because, you know, they just quit anything that gets hard or are they quitting because they're responding to information that they are getting by living, right? Mm -hmm. Our, our, Our insight into ourselves, I think, is constrained by our roster of experiences. And with the research in match quality, again, that's the degree of fit between who you are and what you do turns out to be really important for your sense of fulfillment for your uh, you know learning rates and all these things that what you want to be doing is triangulating match quality based on things you learn about yourself and you want to keep doing that over the course of your life to give a good example I just added an afterword to the paperback Mm -hmm. of range and I featured Well, I I featured, I got a chance to talk to Serena Williams, by the way. It turned out, this was a surprise even to me after having written range that she did ballet, gymnastics, taekwondo, track and field, and some other stuff when she was a kid. Again, a super famous athlete where I had no idea that was the case. But I also featured this army program called Talent-Based Branching, where instead of saying, here's your career path, get up or out, they pair a cadet with like a mentor or kind of a coach like mentor. They say, dabble this career path. Reflect on how it fits you with your mentor. Keep track of those reflections in an online portal. um, And then try another, try at least five. Dabble in at least five of these careers. Mm -hmm. And in this research, they found that cadets going through talent-based branching were often surprised by things they thought they'd be good at, that they were bad at. They were often surprised by things they thought would be boring, that they were interested in. 90% of the cadets who went through talent-based branching changed their career preference. 90% of them, just by getting the gift of that sampling period, that looks just like what athletes who go on to be elite tend to go through. And so when we were talking about quitting, this came to mind because to me, the program is essentially intelligent quitting, but they branded it as talent-based branching so it doesn't sound bad, It doesn't yeah. have a stigma of like quitting a bunch of times until you find something better. So I think we need to rebrand quitting as talent-based branching <laughs> in general.
0: Which I think is exactly right. I mean, especially for young people starting out. I mean, the first sort of five to eight years of, of someone's career – um, should be trying different things out and moving around and, 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 and seeing what, what, what's actually interesting to you.
1: Totally. I
0: mean, I think the work of, I always come back
1: to the work of a woman named Herminia Ibarra, a London business school professor who looks at career transitions. And her work and other work like it have convinced me that for the most part, the information you get about yourself and the options in the work world, so match quality information, is more important than the actual skills you're getting early in your career. And I think there's some pretty good work uh, from economists also showing that that tends to be true in college too, that the return to match quality information, you figuring out what you're good and bad at, what you're interested in and not, is is higher than the return to the actual stuff that you're learning. Uh, and I think that's might be counterintuitive and probably feels hard to embrace in the moment. And so I think it would be better if we have systems set up for that, like this talent-based branching, since it's hard to tell individuals to just sort of, you know, not follow their
0: intuition. How? How? When do we know? And I, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. But I, I'm I'm curious on your take. When do we know when to quit? Like for example, my 12 year old. We forced him to play piano for you know three years. He he played the violin before for a few years, and then we forced him to play the piano, and he's done. He he loves sports, but he can read notes. You can give him, mm-hmm. you know. A sheet of music, and he can play it. Um, but he doesn't want to play anymore. He's done, mm-hmm. and we've made peace with that. Part of me, it, it hurts. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I feel sure. like. But um, but I, I the same thing happened to me when I was a kid, um, and so I wonder when, as as a parent, and I know you're a new parent, and so it's tough because this is not your you know I, I'm putting you on the spot and asking you to be like a you know a a, a, a parental advisor, but. Mm-hmm. When do we know when it's okay for our kids to walk away from something, and when we should push them to continue to keep at it?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to be on that spot because with my two years of experience, I should tell everyone exactly <laughs> how to parent. So, um, <laughs> I, I think I think that's I don't think anybody has a perfect answer to that question, and I think it's partly because we're looking at an interaction between not only the kid discovering who they are, but these systems that like you can't work outside the system, mm. right? That's why I think we need to change the systems instead of expecting parents to somehow go rogue. But I think there are a couple of things. I mean, if I had to, well, as a parent, I'm, I'm glad I got to do the research that went into range. Mm-hmm. And one of my main takeaways was that parents are not creating their child to the sense that they think by trying to like micromanage who they become, yeah. which in some ways I found depressing at first and then later liberating when I said like, well, well I don't want to micromanage anyway. Mm. And so Above a certain level of enrichment, like you can certainly ruin a kid through deprivation, but above a certain level of enrichment, I think the best approach is helping them figure out who they're going to become and helping them get the highest amount of signal about who they are and what they're interested in and good at from every experience. So I view my sense as the coach-like mentor and talent-based branching where I I array some opportunities for my kid, and those always be limited, right? Based on what's around you. And then helping them engage in active reflection, what's called self-regulatory learning. Like that portal in talent-based branching that cadets keep track of how they think they're doing, how they felt about certain experiences. It turns out that most people don't do that as rigorously as they should so mm-hmm. that we should have systems for reflecting. And that's how people get more signal about themselves and also get better uh, you know, at, at certain tasks. And so I think the best thing I can do is array those options and then try to help my kid get the most possible signal from each one by engaging in behaviors that lead to systematic uh, reflection and then using that knowledge to figure out where to pivot next.
0: The, the book is full of examples of generalists. Van Gogh, um, for example, um, pastor, teacher, bookseller. He, he only you know, kind of discovered his talent for art close to the end of his life. Um, and you, you, you describe these two environments um, in which generalists are better at navigating one over the other. One is a, a mm-hmm. wicked environment. One is a kind environment. Can you explain the distinction between those two? Yeah, those are terms uh, coined by the psychologist
1: Robin Hogarth. And for a kind learning environment, what he meant was a domain where next steps and goals are clear. You know, they're given to you. Yep. Um, rules are clear and
0: never change. There's a path. You just take a box. You move to the next thing.
1: Correct, correct. Patterns repeat. um, uh, Feedback is quick and accurate. Work next year will look like work last year, basically. So golf, pretty good example of that. On the other end of the spectrum, and it is a spectrum, are what Hogarth called wicked learning environments where next steps and goals may not just be handed to you. There may not be like clear steps that other people have followed that you can just copy. Uh, Rules might change if there are rules. Mm patterns don't just repeat. Feedback could be delayed or it yeah. could be wrong. Yeah. Um, and work next year may not look like work last year. And what Hogarth and others in the field wrote is that it's these more wicked learning environments that, in, that increasingly we are in where our work is does not necessarily look the same from day to day and certainly not from year to year. And then it's in those areas where you don't want to be falling prey to that Einstelung effect I mentioned, where you start using the same solution over and over because it worked in the past, Mm. because of experience. And so you have to have this broader toolbox that allows you to accomplish what psychologists call transfer, which is taking your skills and abilities and being able to use them for problems or tasks that you've never quite faced before. And that's where people with this broader base, you know, with some period of sampling or generalization, tend to have more tools to use for pivoting and tend to be less likely to to suffer from so-called cognitive entrenchment or doing the same thing over and over, even if the situation
0: has changed. Well, you mentioned um, a researcher named Abby Griffin mm-hmm. who studies serial innovators. And obviously, your book is full of serial innovators like Steve Jobs or, or, or Charles Darwin. What are the things that they do? What did Abby Griffin find that... Um, you know, generalists, what you you describe as generalists, tend to do in in the course of their ordinary lives.
1: Yeah. By serial innovators, basically you can think of these as people who make repeated creative contributions, Mm -hmm. like wherever they are. Not just once, but they're repeatedly doing that. And Griffin, I sort of excerpted from her work descriptors of who these people are in general. And it was things like they have a need to learn uh, outside of their own domain they have a need to have a professional or social network with people who have expertise in areas that aren't their own. They repurpose old things in different ways they connect disparate pieces of information. Well, I remember one of them was they appear to flit among ideas which normally would sound like <laughs> a you know not a compliment yeah they read more and more widely than their peers um, all these sorts of things that don't really sound like what you might want if you have to fill a certain job today and and what she says in some of her writing you can sort of hear her talking to hr people saying like dear hr people when you if you define a job too narrowly you're making sure you select these people out these people who need access to expertise from lots of domains and need to recombine things from different domains in new ways and and i think my read of this literature suggests that you can't just like create these people necessarily mm-hmm. serial innovators but you can certainly stifle them by not allowing them to roam a little more widely in search of these sorts of connections, both both social and, and technical. Um, and so I think that's really important from like organizational development standpoint. I mean, if you want those people, you have to at least make sure that people that are, that are inclined that way are not stifled by the systems around them, or, or else they have to gain those kinds of experiences, that breadth of experience by just like leaving and going from one place to another. And so a lot of them A lot of the serial innovators actually end up with a quite varied career because they're not allowed to sort
0: of explore their their interests in one place. Have there been case studies on employment outcomes for people who are generalists versus specialists? Like when economies change, is there evidence to show that generalists, you know, come out of it better than specialists?
1: Yeah, there's some stuff of that nature. And I should say, by the way, the term generalist, it's in the research. What generalist means depends on like who's operationalizing it. So like in research of technology, it's often based on how many different areas of technology is classified by the patent office someone has worked in. So it really like depends on the specific area, uh, how those researchers work. But yes, I mean, there's Hmm. really interesting research that I think gets to what you're asking about was some research that looked at about a dozen countries and matched people for years of of school or training, their parents' education, um, and when it was available, their national test scores. The difference was some of them got more career-focused training and some of them got broader general education. And the pattern in all but one of the countries was that the people who got the career-focused education, they're more likely to get hired right away. They jump out to an income lead. But they end up so much less adaptable in a changing work world Mm. that their growth rates are slower. And when their industry, when there's like a shock to their industry, they end up out of work or going backward much more. And so they win in the short term, but over the course of their careers, they lose out to the people who had the broader background, uh, who who sort of gain on them and, and surpass them in the end. And the faster changing a national economy was in the study, the greater the advantage was for the people who had the broader background.
0: David, I wonder if, like in the sports gene, right, that there are certain people who are, you know, sort of more naturally attuned to performing at, at, at an elite level, right, because of, of certain genetic advantages they have. Could you kind of apply that to the idea of, of, of range, of being a generalist versus a non-generalist? Because it does require somebody to have a certain level of curiosity and um and while I think curiosity is a choice and can be cultivated it's it's easier for some people to do that than for others i I think that's definitely true. I think
1: you know to to paraphrase the so-called first law of behavioral genetics, which is not actually a law, it's just a consistent finding. Um, everything every behavior has a genetic component. it's just a question of how large it is. And so I would say from the standpoint of something, a personality characteristic like curiosity, you know, genetics influences everything and determines basically nothing mm. <laughs> is, is probably the way that I would think about it. And so I think a lot of this is a journey of figuring out who it is you are. And certainly curiosity helps with that. And, and just like, you know, to bring in a previous point, I mentioned self-regulatory learning, which is the process of reflection that tends to be common to people, whether they are athletes or entrepreneurs. That they engage in people who get off performance plateaus, and that comes naturally to some people. They just do it, but most for most people it doesn't, and so they need systems. Whether that's as simple as like a journal where they ask the same four or five questions themselves every month and write it down, most people want to have a system for that. So I think while while this comes a lot of the things I'm talking about come more naturally to some people than others. As, as with anything, um, there's a lot that can be done by if you recognize it's something that you need, setting up systems that. That help promote the behaviors
0: you want, and 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 ultimately, w- w- I, I would argue, and I think you you probably would uh, agree with this, is that you can cultivate generalism. Like you can, you can choose to pursue a generalist outlook. You can follow your curiosity.
1: Definitely, I definitely agree with that, and I also think that. You know, and I, I really think there are a lot of people who would like to engage their curiosity more, but they feel like whoever their leaders are would look down on it. Like, I can't tell you the number of, you know, in writing a book about the benefits of breadth, I would talk to tons of academics and would often, they would often mention to me, like, you know, when I got into academia, I really was like looking for this like wide ranging life of the mind. But, you know, to move ahead, you had to really like focus in and specialize. And they often seem disappointed by that, and that I think is, if we've made curiosity into a liability, that I think is a problem of, of leadership. Um, so I think we can, you know, we can do a better job of, of allowing people, you know, I- at, least, at least not stifling that sort of curiosity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I think that's, that's something we can all do to some
0: degree, even if it comes more naturally to some people than others. That's David Epstein. He's a journalist and science writer. His books include The Sports Gene and Range. You can find more of David's writing in ProPublica, Sports Illustrated, and The Atlantic. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.